I want to make audiobooks, particularly audiobooks like this, because there's something you can do and there's a, there's a response you can summon in telling a story this way that you cannot do on the page. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, Malcolm Gladwell on his latest book, The Bomber Mafia, The Power of the Human Voice, and Why Audiobooks Are the Future. If I asked you to make a list of the most important moments in the Second World War, what would you choose? Now, really, think about it. Pearl Harbor, storming the beaches of Normandy, dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Whatever is on your list, my guess is that you didn't include January 6th, 1945, the day a brilliant young general named Haywood Hansel lost his job commanding a fleet of B-29 bombers in Guam. It was a job he'd been born for. Hansel came from a line of military men that stretched all the way back to the Revolutionary War. He'd followed quickly in their footsteps, joining the Army in 1928, getting his wings, and becoming an instructor at the Air Corps Tactical School in Alabama, all before his 35th birthday. There in Alabama, he found his calling. He wasn't just meant to be a military man, he was meant to be a revolutionary. He fell in with a band of renegades who spent a lot of time talking about recent advancements in aviation. Airplanes, they pointed out, had come a long way since they'd flown in the First World War. For one thing, they weren't made of plywood and fabric anymore. Now, they were aluminum and steel. They'd also gotten bigger, which meant that for the first time, they could carry bombs. And they were faster, could fly higher, were harder to shoot down, so you didn't have to sneak up on your enemy under the cover of darkness. You could drop your bombs in broad daylight when you could actually see the target. And thanks to a novel piece of military R&D called the bomb site, you could, in theory anyway, drop a bomb from six miles up and land it in a pickle barrel. Hansel and his fellow renegades believed that these advancements would change not only the nature of aerial warfare, but war itself. Because if you could fly over enemy territory and take out a few crucial targets, you could cripple your enemy's ability to fight back without having to level cities, rack up civilian casualties, or send a single soldier onto the battlefield. These were highly unorthodox views in the 1930s, and they earned Hansel and his fellow believers a nickname that was meant to poke fun at their outsider status, the Bomber Mafia. When Hansel lost his job in January 1945, he was trying to bring the Bomber Mafia's views into the mainstream. At the time, he was stationed in Guam, one of the Mariana Islands, about 1,500 miles off the coast of Japan. For 55 straight days, he had tried to make the dream of the Bomber Mafia a reality, sending his fleet of B-29 bombers out on numerous attacks on Japan. And for 55 straight days, the results had been not good. The winds were too strong, the clouds too thick, the bomb sites useless. One day, Hansel sent 72 B-29s to take out a Japanese plane factory. They missed the factory and set fire to a hospital instead. So his commanding officer flew to Guam and told him, this isn't working, you're out. Hansel was crushed. And then came the bayonet to the gut. He learned he was being replaced by Curtis LeMay, the man who was, in every way, his opposite. Hansel was a Southern aristocrat. LeMay grew up poor in Ohio. Hansel was trim. LeMay was jowly as a bulldog. Hansel was eloquent, a romantic. LeMay was terse, a realist. 
Most importantly, Hansel was devoted to the dream of precision bombing. LeMay was not. A few weeks after taking over Hansel's fleet, LeMay launched a nighttime attack on Tokyo, and there was nothing precise about it. Bombers dropped nearly 2,000 tons of napalm. They set 16 square miles on fire and claimed the lives of 100,000 people. When the war was over, one report would conclude that more people lost their lives by fire that night than at any other time in history. That story, the story of how the dream of the bomber mafia gave way to the firebombing of Tokyo, is the subject of a new book by my guest today, Malcolm Gladwell. But because this is a Malcolm Gladwell book, it's about a lot of other things too, like a Dutch computer genius and a British psychopath and pyromaniacal chemist at Harvard. It's also a book that dares to ask a vexing moral question. What happens when a new piece of technology, like the bomber plane, a piece of technology with the potential to reinvent war, to make it bloodless, what happens when that technology is driven off course? I also want to say that on a personal level, this conversation was particularly interesting to me because, full disclosure, I'm a fan of Malcolm's work. His style, his sentences, long followed by short, his storytelling techniques have influenced this show. I know this may compromise my objectivity as an interviewer, but I'm okay with that because I also know that I'm not alone. Malcolm has influenced countless authors and inspired millions of fans. And if you've made it this far into the episode, then you're probably one of them. You know his early books, The Tipping Point, Blank Outliers. You may have read one. With those books, Malcolm helped birth a new genre of nonfiction at the intersection of science and great storytelling. What you may not know, though, is that in the last few years, Malcolm has shifted his focus from books to audio. A few years ago, he co-founded an audio production company called Pushkin Industries that produces revisionist history and a bunch of other great podcasts, and that is beginning to produce a new kind of audiobook. Audiobooks that have as many bells and whistles as a B-29 superfortress. Music, sound effects, archival tape, interviews. You could think of the Bomber Mafia as a kind of prototype, one that's setting out to change publishing the way the original Bomber Mafia set out to change modern warfare. So I was thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with Malcolm about the story and about the storytelling. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome back to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you, Rufus. Well, first of all, I want to take a minute to thank you for being one of our Next Big Idea Club curators alongside Adam Grant, Susan Cannon, Dan Pink. I have personally discovered countless extraordinary books due to your curation contributions, and I know many people listening have too, so thank you. I don't know. No, it's, it's a very fun little um, uh, gig to have. Well, I'm happy we can turn the uh, Next Big Idea audience's attention towards your latest book, The Bomber Mafia, which feels like a, a different kind of book for you in a few ways. For one, it's the first time, to my knowledge, that you followed a single narrative thread. And it reminds me of something, I think I remember you saying years ago about how you admired Michael Lewis because he had the courage to tell a single story, whereas you historically had a number of stories in your books, which kind of takes the pressure off. It's like a diversified portfolio of storytelling. 
Was this a matter of finally finding the right story? Yes. I mean, you're absolutely right. I've always admired Mike Lewis because he can do that. I always thought that I, I don't know why, I just lacked the confidence to do that. And what always happens with me is I get distracted. So I I start, you know, I have one little storyline and then I, I'm thinking, I think, oh, I want to jump over and make another version of this argument a different way. Or I want to extend the, and it never occurs to me to maintain my focus on one narrative. This story really does kind of, finally, I found a story where I had the confidence to stick to it because it's just so rich and it's so beautifully, there's a beginning and there's an end. And it's rare that you also get a story where the beginning and the end are given to you. Right or not, you don't have to figure it out what the beginning and end is. It's it's sort of, it lands on your plate. So yeah, this is very much a departure. But also it's like, the thing is, if you think about a Michael Lewis book, you know, you can pick almost any of them and you have the same response, which is that Michael is asking you to spend 350 pages with a relatively short list of characters. You know, some of his books, he has five or six main characters. Some of his books, it's, three or four. And so you have to be very sure if you are going to write that kind of story, that these are people that your reader or listener wants to spend that much time with. Now, Michael's gifts are such that he can make almost anyone so appealing and so interesting that you'll spend time with them. But that's, you know, not everyone is as much of a genius as he is. So finding a story where I could have that confidence was hard. Well, we're going to do something special for our listeners today, which is we're going to share some clips from the Bomber Mafia as part of our process of exploring both the story of the Bomber Mafia, but also the storytelling technique, because I think it's just so fascinating. But to to start off, Malcolm, do you want to set up the book for our listeners? What's the elevator pitch? This is a book about a group of pilots in central Alabama in the 1930s who became convinced they could reinvent war. I might say reinvent, I mean, they could find a way to wage war such that a fraction of the people would die, such that civilians wouldn't be slaughtered in massive numbers, such that we wouldn't have to destroy entire cities in order to defeat our enemy. And the reason they had this dream was they were great believers in this new thing called the bomber. They thought that bombers changed everything. And more specifically, they thought that if you could drop a bomb accurately from a bomber, if you could hit the target you want to hit on the ground, then every other aspect of modern warfare became obsolete. You wouldn't need armies, you wouldn't need navies, you wouldn't need artillery, you wouldn't need tanks. Everything you wanted to do, you could do from the air. And once you make that leap, you're like, oh, I could just sail over my enemy city and I can take out the power plant and the aqueduct and the bridges and I'm done and then go home and they'll be powerless and I can destroy their one factory, maybe they got one factory that makes their fighter planes. I'll take that out too, so they can't come after me. And then I am I can go home and the war's over. They'll sue for peace. That's the vision these guys had. And my book is the story of the birth of that idea, that dream, and then what happens to that dream in the Second World War. And you also have a personal connection to the story, which you share in the opening and the author's note. We've just learned that your father, as a young boy, lying in bed, often heard German warplanes above him. Let's play this clip. One day, a stray bomb landed in my grandparents' back garden. It didn't explode. It just sat there, half buried in the ground. And I think it's fair to say that if you were a five-year-old boy 
with an interest in things mechanical, a German bomb sitting unexploded in your backyard would have been just about the most extraordinary experience imaginable. Not that my father described it that way. My dad was a mathematician and an Englishman, which is to say that the language of emotion was not his first language. Rather, it was like Latin or French, something which one could study and understand, but never fully master. No, that an unexploded German bomb in your backyard would be the most extraordinary experience imaginable for a five-year-old was my interpretation when my father told me that story of the bomb when I was five years old. I love what you've done here in the opening pages is that you've told us why this is personal for you, Mm -hmm. but you've also given us, with remarkably few words, insight into your relationship with your father. I mean, this line, like, emotion is a second language in which he'll never be fully fluent. To me, it sets up, and I don't know if this is intentional, the idea that getting closer to your father's interests, perhaps including World War II, was in part a way of getting closer to the man, an Englishman, a mathematician, who was not necessarily emotionally available. Is that reading too much into it? Uh, No. I mean, it was definitely a way of getting closer to my father. I think he was, I think it'd be fair to say, it's not that he was emotionally unavailable. It's that he wouldn't have expressed that experience in emotional terms. So it's just that he would tell that story, but he wouldn't draw out the emotional lesson of it. Mm -hmm. He would say, you know, he would have a very kind of rational description, which is, Mm. well, it was wartime in England. And if you were in the middle of the war zone, these kinds of things happened. And, you know, he would tell it with a little bit of a twinkle in his eye because he survived. But me hearing that, I think in many ways, the fact that he didn't fill in all the blanks was an enormous gift because what have I done in my life? Well, I've I have told stories that fill in all those blanks. I mean, the uh, it sort of opened the door uh, to let me and my brothers interpret that story for ourselves. Sometimes I think people think of the absence of that kind of emotional filler as a problem. Mm. I think it's the opposite. I actually think that he did us an enormous service by telling that story as simply as possible um, and allowing our imaginations to run with it. And it's interesting that you say that it led you to tell stories that fill in all the blanks, because it strikes me that some of your process sometimes involves not filling in all the blanks, right? And bringing the reader or listener along to participate in this process of filling in the blanks. But I think it's also really interesting to see you putting yourself into the opening of the story, which you haven't always done Mm -hmm. in your writing. And it strikes me that this is kind of a new school rather than an old school approach to nonfiction, I think of the, like the TED talk formula is like you have a powerful idea and you also have a narrator who has a personal investment in this idea, some kind of personal connection to it. And as we think about like the ways that audio is changing the storytelling experience, I wonder if this personal investment is just makes storytelling that much more powerful. Do you think it's something that you will do in the future? Yeah. I mean, I think there's several things going on here. One is that Because this book is such a departure for me, it's a single narrative, it's about a war. Neither of those things are things that I've written a lot about in the past. I felt I needed to explain my interest to my listeners who are used to a different kind of 
Malcolm Gladwell story. And the other thing about it is that uh, audio is so intimate that it allows you to do that. You know, the same kind of personal appeal that might feel forced on the page seems to make sense because I'm saying to the listener, listen, I'm going to be in your ear Mm -hmm. for the next five hours, assuming you finish. (laughs) I hope to be in your ear for the next five hours. So let me just tell you a little bit about myself before the two of us have such an intimate experience. So I kind of think that sort of interlude is necessary and valuable in beginning an audio story. And there's also the factor of what audio listeners have come to expect. I think that just in the world of podcasting, there does just tend to be more of that forthcoming personal style. But getting into the story, so there are two main protagonists of the story, Curtis LeMay and Haywood Hansel, both these just fascinating characters. You open the book with this culminative moment in the story. Let's share the clip. Curtis LeMay arrived for the changeover, flying himself to the island in a B-29 bomber. The star-spangled banner was played. The soldiers of the 21st Command marched by for review. A public relations officer proposed a picture of the two of them to mark the moment. LeMay had a pipe in his mouth. He always had a pipe in his mouth, and he didn't know what to do with it. He kept trying to put it in his pocket. General, the aide said, Please let me hold your pipe while the picture is taken. LeMay said in a quiet voice, Where do you want me to stand? The cameras clicked, Hansel squinting off in the distance, LeMay looking down at the ground, two men anxious to be anywhere but in each other's company. And with that, it was over. The Bomber Mafia is the story of that moment. What led up to it And what happened next? Because that change of command reverberates to this day. So you you said earlier that the story offered up both an opening and a closing. And this, to some degree, this moment functions as both. Or it's the middle. It's the kind of, you know, there's a, the story begins in central Alabama with these pilots and it ends over Japan in the summer of 1945. This moment is in January of 45, which is the, it's the turning point of the narrative. The book is divided into two parts. The second part is about Japan, and the first part is about what led up to it. And that story is the moment where we go from part one to part two. We go from the bomber mafia's tale to Curtis LeMay's response to the bomber mafia. So that, you know, not only did this story present a natural beginning and a natural end, it presented an, a natural turning point as well. That's what we just heard, that these two, Hansel was the spiritual leader of the Bomber Mafia, and Curtis LeMay was uh, the Bomber Mafia's greatest antagonist. And they come head to head in that moment I've just described. And so turning to the Bomber Mafia, let's talk about who these guys were, a bunch of defiant, contrarian renegades, which I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say, Malcolm, that you have a history of being attracted to contrarians. I do. Here's a clip from chapter two, entitled, We Make Progress Unhindered by Custom. Because air power was young, the faculty of the tactical school were young, in their 20s and 30s, full of the ambition of youth. They got drunk on the weekends, flew warplanes for fun, and raced each other in their cars. 
Their motto was proficimus more irritenti. We make progress unhindered by custom. The leaders of the Air Corps Tactical School were labeled the Bomber Mafia. It was not intended as a compliment. These were the days of Al Capone and Lucky Luciano and shootouts on the street. But the Air Corps faculty? They thought the outcast label quite suited them. And it stuck. We were highly enthusiastic. We were starting on uh, like a crusade something. There were a dozen of us, and the only uh, opposition we had were the 10,000 officers in the rest of the <laughs> army, plus the Navy. That's Harold George, one of the spiritual leaders of the Bomber Mafia. George was from Boston, joined the Army during the First World War, became captivated by airplanes, started teaching at the tactical school in the early 1930s, rose to the rank of general during the Second World War. After the war, he went to work for Howard Hughes, setting up Hughes's electronics business. Then George left to help build another electronics firm that became a giant defense contractor. And this is my favorite part. He was twice elected mayor of Beverly Hills. Oh, and I forgot to mention, looks like a movie star. That's one man in one lifetime. (laughs) So there are a few things I love about this clip. I mean, first, it delivers beautifully in a distilled fashion the spirit of these guys. I mean, to hear Harold George say, the only opposition we had was 10,000 officers and the entirety of the armed forces. <laughs> and then he chuckles, right? I mean, this is like, it's the defiance and confidence yeah. that elsewhere you liken to that of like a Silicon Valley culture, right? There's this bold, almost reckless faith in the power of technology. But you point out these guys were animated by a loftier set of principles. Is that right? Yes. They differ from a lot of technological innovators because what animated them was a moral consideration. These are the children of the First World War. And to have either participated in or merely witnessed the First World War was to be traumatized. They were individual battles in the First World War where a million people were killed. Mm. It's just a kind of, the level of carnage in the First World War, senseless carnage. I mean, it never went anywhere. Like, it's one thing to have a battle where a million people die. It's another thing to have a battle where a million people die and nothing happens as a result of the battle. I mean, it was the most kind of like appalling, senseless carnage that went on and on and on for four years. And so a generation comes out of that war and just says, we can never do that again. And so these guys, the Bomber Mafia, that's what's driving them. They happen to be engineers who are very conversant with the new technologies then coming out of this brand new field of aviation. But what they really are, are the children of the First World War, who just, the idea that they would ever have to go through a military conflict where millions of men of their generation were sent to pointless deaths and where millions of civilians were destroyed in the aim of some fuzzy outcome, They just didn't want to do that again. And, you know, it made me a little bit nostalgic, frankly, there for a time when technological innovators had a moral cause as their motivating purpose. And they could have this kind of brash, they could race cars by day and fly airplanes and be a little little reckless in a way that we recognize, right? They're very recognizable to us today. But at the same time, they had a bit of a moral compass. I mean, some of the reviews of the Bomber Mafia have accused you of celebrating warmongers. 
But it strikes me that that misses the point, that they're just, there are no good choices in war. Yeah. And you need people with a moral compass, right? Is that, would that be your response? Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things about the story I'm telling is that war presents us with a series of impossible decisions. By impossible, I mean, there's no neat and tidy outcome where every consideration, moral and otherwise, is satisfied. Every direction you take is just hugely problematic. And I wanted to describe the dilemmas of two groups of people who were put in that impossible situation. And I don't take sides in the end. I mean, I happen to believe, to the extent there are heroes in the book, it's the Bomber Mafia. That's who I'm in love with. But, you know, the Bomber Mafia couldn't win the war. So, you know, I wanted to sort of take us back and look at the end of the Second World War through the eyes of those who had no choice but to make decisions and to kind of live with the consequences of their decisions. And the decisions they make, many of them, are in retrospect appalling. But that doesn't mean they weren't necessary in the moment. Mm. Yeah. Well, another thing I love about that clip is your line, and this is my favorite part. He was twice elected mayor of Beverly Hills. <laughs> oh, and I forgot to mention, he looks like a movie star. That's one man in one lifetime. So it, it's like, one of the things I enjoy is that as a listener, we see you kind of falling for the protagonist. And like your, your, um, your delight in the details always came across in your writing, but in audio, we feel it in a more moving way, I think. I just love, all these guys, so many of them are so larger than life. And what's crazy about that is, so here's a guy, he's in the thick of it. First of all, he's at the head of a technological and moral revolution in the 1930s. Yeah. Fights his way across the Second World War. Then makes an ungodly sum of money with Howard Hughes in the 50s and 60s. But it's not enough. He has to run for mayor of Beverly Hills. I just love these guys. <laughs> like, he just can't. Their appetite for doing stuff yeah. is endless. There's a reason, you know, that hackneyed phrase, the greatest generation. But after you read these things, you sort of have to say, you know what? They kind of were the greatest generation. You know, after trying to solve some of the biggest moral questions of the day and problems of warfare that have gone back thousands of years, and after blazing a trail in electronics after the war, he then turns his attention to Beverly Hills and says, <laughs> and you know what? Let's fix Beverly Hills while we're at it. <laughs> it's just like, I just love these guys. They're just amazing. Coming up, Malcolm tells me that if you want to understand the difference between the branches of the military, you need to hear the story of a modernist architect and a chapel with a leaky roof. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Well, on the subject of your delight in the details, one of my favorite passages, and I suspect one of your favorites, is the digression on the subject of the chapels of the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and what they say about the respective cultures. Here, let's share that clip. So... 
the chapel at West Point Military Academy, the historic training ground for the officers of the U.S. Army, stands on a bluff high above the Hudson River, dominating the skyline of the campus. The chapel was completed in 1910 in the grand Gothic Revival style, built entirely out of somber gray granite. Tall, narrow windows, it has the brooding power of a medieval fortress, solid, plain-spoken, unmovable. Builder writes, This is a quiet place for simple ceremonies, with people who are close to each other and to the land that has brought them up. That's the army, deeply patriotic, rooted in service to country. Then there's the chapel at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. It was built almost at the same time as its West Point counterpart, but it's much bigger, grander. It's in the style of American Beaux-Arts, with a massive dome based on the design of the military chapel at Les Invalides in Paris. The stained glass windows are enormous, letting the light shine into the ornate, detailed interior. That's very Navy. Arrogant, independent, secure in the global scale of its ambitions. I urge you, if you are close to your computer or your phone, to do a simple image search. Start with the Army Chapel, Gothic granite, then the Navy Chapel, gray bricks flourished with bronze and copper. And then compare those two to the Cadet Chapel at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. This is a chapel from another universe. It was finished in 1962, but if I told you that it was finished last month, you would say, wow, that's a futuristic building. The Air Force Chapel looks like someone lined up a squadron of fighter jets like dominoes with their noses pointed towards the heavens. It looks ready to take flight with a magnificent deafening whoosh. Inside the cathedral, there are more than 24,000 pieces of stained glass in 24 different colors, and at the front, a cross with cross beams that look like propellers. Outside, four fighter jets are jauntily parked, as if some pilots, on a whim, had dropped in for Sunday morning communion. I love how the idea that the chapels are metaphors for the differences between the branches extends to the music selections, of course. Which yes, is- that's right. The, uh, you know, books like this, part of the reason they're so much fun to do, and I suspect also to listen, is that unlike a print book, which is really the product of an author you know, with an editor guiding them along the way, this book is a team project. I mean, it's sound people, it's engineers, it's... You know, it's like people finding you all this amazing tape. I mean, it's so it has this. You can feel the richness of the production. Absolutely. The same way you do with a movie. You know, you you understand that a movie is a group project when you watch a movie. No, this has become a theme of great interest for me recently. Is this idea that that to some degree all success is group success? Like even when a singular author writes a book, they're all the lives of the people who are described in the book that have made the whole story possible, right? It's always a collective success. But to some degree, the more collaborative the execution, often the better the result is, right? I mean, we see this in like television writing and other areas. And I, it does make me wonder whether this isn't the beginning of more collaborative nonfiction production. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. You know, certainly if you just look at something like productivity, I don't know why it took me until I was in my 50s to realize that if I put together a team around me, I would be twice as productive. 
took me a long time to fit. The most obvious, duh, of course, right? Like, but for whatever reason, I was resistant to that notion before. Maybe it's because writing a book doesn't really lend itself to teamwork in the same way that audio does. It's just another way in which audio is different. Well, and twice as productive, but also I think it makes the process twice as much fun, which yeah. also ends up being revealed, baked into the product, right? I mean, you can feel the fun that's being had and all the little choices, right, along the way. But then what I really love about this uh, Cadet Chapel piece is this incredible clip in the interview with the architect of the chapel, Walter Netsch. You get into technology, you sometimes get into trouble. Well, to go back to even one of your projects, I have read that the chapel oh. has problems with leaky oh, windows and leaky oh, the, rooms. Oh, that's that a wonderful story. Sort of a constant problem. That's kind of a wonderful story. What happened is that all of a sudden these leaks started. And Ed Petrazio and I and one other person would fly out to Colorado Springs and get in a little cheap motel and wait for the rains. And it would rain and then we'd rush up to the chapel and it's a big building and try to find out, you know, where it was where leaking inside, from. how's it coming from. I had to write a report and I was so hurt about these leaks. I called it a report on water migration on the Air Force Academy Chapel. <laughs> and needless to say, I received a little uh, humorous digs over my uh, euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love that the interviewer is pointing out the structural problems of his creation in a kind of, as something that's embarrassing. And he keeps interrupting, oh, it's a wonderful story, right? Um, and that it's the fact that I spent years building this thing and it was leaking, it's just fantastic that we had all, you know, these different facets of the, you know, and the physics of it. And this struck me as really of a piece with the sort of move fast and break things culture of the Air Force, right? That, yes. That he's able to delight in the complexity of it, which leads to problems. And that's because that's that's part of the process. You know, the Army, if you try that on the Army, first of all, they would never have approved such a radical design. And secondly, if there were all these kinds of problems, they would have dragged out their investigation and there would be hearings on the Hill and have much harumphing. And but the whole point of the Air Force is, you know, if you look at the B-29, I talk a lot about the B-29, the big bomber, mm, yeah. new bomber that's a, that introduced, that revolutionizes the air war of the Second World War. The B-29 is exactly the same way when it's introduced. It's just like the Air Force Academy, which is leaking from day one. The B-29, but they roll it out and it's a disaster. And they just fix it on the fly. No one seems terribly concerned that it, the earliest models to roll off the line have like 10 different things wrong with it. They accept that as normal. That's what they do. They come out with groundbreaking new things that can't be perfected. And that what you do is you work with it and you fix it as you go along. This is just considered to be the way it works, right? And you're right. It's such a wonderfully modern notion. It's the software yeah, idea, yeah. right? Just yeah. put the, you, you just do 2.0 and 3.0 and you'll get it right eventually. These guys were doing that back in the Second World War. In that culture, the fact that the chapel leaks, it's like, all right, let's fix it. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting well, problem, right? And I love that you say it has all kinds of structural problems. Of course it does. This is one of the things I find so interesting about the way you tell the story is that we see your thesis coming together, 
Right. I mean, the exclamation, of course it does. Like, this is the, the nature of, of the approach that this team of folks in the Air Force has. And I think you've always done that to some degree, but it's somehow that much more vivid in, in the audio format. This process of like the listener or reader watching, I, I, you don't just come out of the gate with like, here's my thesis, and I'm just going to systematically prove that it's right. We watch the thesis, all the puzzle pieces fit together. I mean, it's why it's just such a great story. I mean, the story, the underlying story that of the Bomber Mafia is just, and it's sort of interaction, it's struggles during the Second World War. Just, I mean, it's one of those, you know, there aren't a lot of stories like that, but as a writer, when you stumble across sometimes stories that almost write themselves, they're just, it just says all the puzzle pieces are just there, you know? It's got character, it's got action, it's got complication, it's got, you know, twists and turns. And so this one was a delight to do. I just enjoyed myself so much because I thought everything was just so, had so much possibility. And so do you think, is it fair to say that at least during the course of World War II, that the bomber mafia's thesis about precision bombing fully failed? I mean, they were unable to hit ball bearing factories and execute on their original vision. But was there some partial success or would the war have been shorter had they not advanced their doctrine? Wow, such a good question. Um, there really isn't um, enough success. I mean, it's a noble effort. I don't think, I think it's fair to say that it was a failure. And would the war have been quicker? Well, that's a much more complicated question because it's also not clear that what their antagonists were doing, carpet bombing, worked either. In general, I think it's fair to say that most historians would agree that air power in the Second World War was not nearly as decisive in, in driving the outcome of particularly the war in Europe as the air forces of all the countries involved thought it would be. So the Germans and the English thought that the Blitz, the bombing of London in 1940, was going to win the war. It was going to win the war for the Germans. They thought that was they were going to bring the British to the knees. It doesn't work. British, you know, thought that, you know, if they just bombed enough German cities, the Germans would give up. Germans didn't give up. It also goes to the question of why is it that bombing, particularly bombing civilians, rarely achieves its goal. So the assumption has always and remains that if you put people under terrible stress, they will give up. And so the bombers, the carpet bombing group, the anti-bomber mafia of the Second World War said, look, you want Germany or Japan to quit? Then all you have to do is just, if you, if you kill enough civilians and terrorize enough civilians, they will pack it in and the war will end. It turns out that just, it is so rarely the case wasn't true in Korea. It wasn't true in Vietnam. Wasn't true. I mean, time and time and time again, this notion that if I terrorize your population, they'll fold never happens. You know, so there's something about fundamental human psychology in the mm. face of trauma that we're not understanding and we're not learning. Maybe we're constantly underestimating just how resilient people are. After the break, Malcolm and I discuss the power of the human voice, why he thinks some stories work better in audio than in print, and the recipe for a successful revolution. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. 
Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Well, so we get into part two of the book, which takes place in Guam and Japan. And you describe some of the brutal fighting that was necessary to secure the Mariana Islands which would prove to be strategically crucial to our ability to win the war. Or actually, it's not you describing the fighting. It's a veteran, Corporal Melvin Dalton. And I think we have a clip from that. Well, then one morning there's a little island sticking up out, and they tell you that's it. And uh, what our main job was was, well, we're supposed to soften them up so the troops in the landing barges could get on the beach. This is a veteran, Corporal Melvin Dalton, recalling the fight. The next morning, why, at the crack of dawn, the ocean's just full of ships and barges headed for the beach and, and they're just gunfire you can't believe. The dead bodies everywhere. Just floating. Nobody had time to pick them up. When those Marines hit those beachheads, they're terrible sometimes. It has to be one of the most emotionally evocative you know, pieces of tape that I've heard. And it's just, even for a writer of your skills, that emotion would have been impossible to render and print in the same way, right? Yes. That's, the, yeah. That's exactly, you've just, that observation distills perfectly why I want to make audiobooks, particularly audiobooks like this. Because there's something you can do and there's a, there's a response you can summon in this telling a story this way that you cannot do on the page. Just hearing that guy's voice, if you read a transcript of that, it works, but it doesn't. It doesn't approximate. That guy breaking down with a memory. You know, you know, you know 40 years has passed or 50 years has passed mm. since that happened. And he you're just hearing in his voice just what that was like. It's funny that this parenthetically has been the best reviewed book I've ever written. Um, there's been one or two bad reviews, but the bad reviews are all people who didn't listen to it. The criticism that I'm sort of a warmonger. Yeah. You, you can't make the criticism if you listen to it because I'm using the tape to make my argument. Yeah. And you have to listen to the tape. And so interesting that audio, the audio and the print versions are, they're quite different. They're not, they don't work the same way on the, on the audience. It feels to me having listened and, and also read 
that the audio experience is like the full flesh and blood beating incarnation of this book. Mm -hmm. And the written book is like a daguerreotype. It's, it's like a black and white sepia toned snapshot. <laughs> like it just, yeah. there's so much more that comes through in the audio. And actually we had a fascinating conversation with John Calapinto, author of This Is The Voice. And he, oh, yeah. he talks about the power of the human voice and he, he calls it molecular lasagna. Oh, that's lovely. Because there's so many layers of meaning yeah. that are coming through in a sequence of words delivered in audio. And it strikes me that it also probably changes the clips that you use because when you're writing a print book, you tend to be looking for quotes that either back up the argument or move the narrative along, right? Whereas in audio, you do that too, but you're sometimes looking for clips that just deliver a kind of emotional depth to the experience. Yes, I think that's quite true. The function of quotation changes. You're right, it's like you're trying to underscore an emotional point often with the clips you use in audio, whereas in the book you are, you may be advancing the argument. Well, so as we've discussed, it turns out the dream of the bomber mafia, the dream that precision bombing could save millions of lives was not realized. We're rooting for Haywood Hansel representing the bomber mafia, but it's Curtis LeMay who delivers what is necessary to win the war. But you might say from the perspective of the long sweep of history, Curtis LeMay wins the battle, not the war. Here's a clip from, from chapter nine. But if Curtis LeMay won the war and the prizes, why is it that it's Haywood Hensel whose memory moves us? Romantic, idealistic Haywood Hensel, who loved Don Quixote, who identified with the delusional gallant knight who tilted helplessly at windmills. We can admire Curtis LeMay and respect him and try to understand his choices, but Hansel is the one we give our hearts to. Why? Because I think he provides us with a model of what it means to be moral in our modern world. We live in an era where new tools and technologies and innovations emerge every day. But the only way those new technologies serve some higher purpose is if a dedicated band of believers insist that they be used to that purpose. That's what the Bomber Mafia tried to do, even as their careful plans were lost in the clouds over Europe and blown sideways over the skies of Japan. They persisted, even in the face of technology's inevitable misdirection, even when abandoning their dream offered a quicker path to victory, even when Satan offered them all the world, if only they would renounce their faith. Without persistence, principles are meaningless, because one day your dream may come true. And if you cannot keep that dream alive in the interim, then who are you? So clearly you see the, the moral rectitude of the Bomber Mafia as the potential inspiration for those of us today who are guiding the application of technology. Do you think that the powers that be in tech today are lacking a moral compass or can benefit from some instruction from these folks? Yeah, I don't know if the current group of Silicon Valley people lack a moral considerations or a moral compass. They're not dealing with war, which of course presents the largest of all set of moral issues. So that's one thing. I mean, if your goal is to, you know, to create a mobile payments platform, you are dealing with some pretty significant issues, but you're not dealing yeah. with questions of life and death in the same way that sure. 
But I do think we sometimes pay a price for the way in which religion has retreated hmm. in our society. Interesting. People who were raised on religion as being a central part of their life, raised in the church, they're just, there's a kind of familiarity with moral language that is just not present today. That's the price you pay for secularization, I think. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think what's fascinating about this story is it's taking us back to a time when religious themes were really central to the way people made sense of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you say that the bomber mafia was wrong about the timing of the advent of precision bombing, but today we have precision bombing. Yes. Right, so you know, as you say towards the end of the book, in this sense, the bomber mafia was right. Um, I mean, Haywood Hansel, who opens and closes the book in that scene of the, you know, where he's effectively fired from his position as a, he's somewhat of a tragic figure, but he has the last laugh to some degree, right? Because the- He does, yeah. he does, yeah. The world of aviation in which we live now is a world that was created by the bomber mafia. I mean, they, they just, they made the mistake that all innovators make, which is they assumed that the world they were imagining was gonna come next year. And instead it came 30 years later. I mean, that's, but that's true of everyone. What was the name of that little handheld device that- The Newton, the, Newton. <laughs> the Apple Newton. Yep, exactly you right. Know, yeah. but, but there's a million examples of that. Like everyone, the thing, the world never shares the innovator's vision. So it takes us a little longer to catch up. Yeah, timing is a bitch. It's hard to get the timing right. Yeah. But I wonder though, if the dream of the bomber mafia, now that we have precision bombing, is war a lesser evil with precision bombing? It's obviously a different views on that. I mean, because there's an argument that precision bombing has, has been part of a pathway to a kind of dehumanized form of battle where soldiers sit in air-conditioned mm -hmm. offices and kill people on the other side of the world. Do you see it as progress? Of a sort. So you're right. I mean, but there is never any innovation in the world of warfare. I would argue any innovation of almost any kind, but certainly not in warfare, that doesn't have an accompanying set of drawbacks, side effects, right? So we will, knock on wood, never have a war again where we will destroy our opponents' capital cities the way we did in World War II. Hopefully, the way we leveled Tokyo and the way we leveled Berlin, those are things of the past. We will never hopefully have battles like we had in the World War I where a million people died. That doesn't mean that war is going away or that war is any less problematic, but the kind of collateral damage caused by the imprecision of the wars of the early 20th century, I think that, knock on wood, I think that's a thing of the past. Well, turning back to the power of audio as a medium, this is such an interesting time, isn't it, for audio and audio books. And I thought of this when I heard a section in the beginning of the book in which you describe how revolutions occur. And you're setting up a description of the bomber mafia, but I think it's interesting to think about whether this might also apply to what you all are setting out to do at Pushkin. Let's give it a listen. Revolutions are invariably group activities. Rarely does someone start a revolution alone at their mother's kitchen table. The Impressionist movement didn't begin because one genius took up painting that way and, like the Pied Piper, attracted a trail of followers. No. Pissarro and Degas enrolled at the École des Beaux-Arts at the same time. Then, Pissarro met Monet, and later Cezanne, at the Académie Suisse. 
Manet met Degas at the Louvre. Monet befriended Renoir at Charles Glair's studio, and Renoir in turn met Pissarro and Cezanne, and soon enough everyone was hanging out at the Café Gerbois, trading ideas and egging each other on, and sharing and competing and dreaming all together until something radical and entirely new emerged. So hanging out, trading ideas, egging each other on, sharing and competing and dreaming all together. It sounds a lot like at least our experience of making a podcast. So uh, I have to ask Malcolm, is Pushkin the new Café Gerbois? Uh, <laughs> is audio the new Impressionism? What, what do you think is going on? Well, that's, uh, that's a stretch. But um, are we seeing a version in the rise of these new media forms are we seeing a version of what we've seen in the past with these kind? Of, yeah, I think we are. I mean, I do think that there are, if you did a family tree of the kind of new world of audio, Ira Glass is, he's at the center, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a group of people who gathered around Ira and then spread in groups, little clumps broke off, and that's how you get modern podcasting. It's not Ira all by himself, but it's Ira in combination with these various people. And they, that kind of spawns. And the fact that Ira starts all this, you know, first in Chicago, and then he moves to New York. And then where, where does everything subsequently come out of? It comes out of New York, because that's where the, that little group was and mm -hmm. set up shop and became successful. And these things always have this kind of fascinating collective pattern. Well, and I love the sense in which storytelling began as an audio experience. And then it became a text experience because, of course, it was possible with the printing press just to distribute much more broadly at a greater scale in text. But it's taken us a while to kind of rediscover that audio is maybe just a better way to tell stories. Um, Certain kinds of stories, yeah. I think that's true. That's what we're figuring. Not all stories, but I do think there's a, yeah. a, a big category that are better heard than read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also interesting, I think, that it's the beginning of the possibility of a substantial distribution change, right, to how people, you know, consume ideas yeah. and from whom they get them, right? Yeah. No, I thought that our hope with, by having like a, you know, baramafia.com website, just go there and get it. If we can start to control our own means of distribution, that's, that is the holy grail, you know, that, that, that's the vision that we're pointing towards. Which positions you much like your bomber mafia protagonists, right? A, a team a team of people believing in new technologies and doing things differently, despite the- uh, 10,000 officers out there working against us, yes. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Malcolm, for taking time out of your, your breaking six minute miles and audio composing and everything else to be with us today. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Would you like to hear more from Malcolm Gladwell? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out his other appearances on this show, like the conversation we had about his last book, Talking with Strangers. You'll also find a riveting conversation between Malcolm and David Epstein about the power of generalists and with Steven Johnson about long-term decision-making. Download the Next Big Idea app today. If you love what we're doing, leave us a five-star rating and if you feel so inclined, a review. We read everyone like this one from Carrie and Dan who wrote, just listened to our first episode and we're hooked. It's just so good. Can't wait to learn more. 
Thanks, Carrie and Dan. We've got lots of great episodes coming your way, like next week's episode, where I'll be chatting with Anna Sale, host of the hit podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, about the three most awkward topics on earth. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell. You can download the Bomber Mafia by going to thebombermafia.com. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kopnot. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Jason Freeman. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. Bye.